Good morning once again. We have been reading about David for some time now, and it's really neat to get a, a big chunk of this Old Testament story and, and learn about David and who he is and what he did and where he fits within the redemptive plans of God. And today is perhaps one of the most important passages in all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament and the Scriptures of Israel, um, but in all of Scripture. This is, this is a very important passage, and so um, it helps to know what's going on and what, what's happening with David in this exchange that he has with God. So let's, um, let's just jump right in. Chapter 7, we're in verse 1. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, he said to Nathan, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So here we have David, and he is in his palace. You remember what happened last week? David brought the ark of covenant, ark of the covenant, this presence of God. He brought it up with him into Jerusalem. And it was this grand celebration, and we saw David dancing and praising God and glorifying him as the Ark of the Covenant was brought home. And we have David now in his house, in his palace, resting. The Lord, look at that, look at that. it says, And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. So this is finally, finally for David, feeling like maybe he's actually the king of Israel. If you remember the circumstances of him, of him claiming this kingship, Saul, um, for years, was trying to kill David. Saul was the king before him, trying to kill David. And finally, Saul died. And when Saul died, David um, was able to start taking his rightful place as king of Israel. But frankly, no one in Israel really was recognizing him. One tribe out of 12, one tribe recognized him as the king the tribe of Judah. And so he spent many years, many years consolidating, um, consolidating these tribes, getting them to believe in him. And in addition, he was fighting these, those dreaded Philistines, the, the arch enemy of David, representative of Goliath. He took Goliath down, but those Philistines wouldn't go anywhere. And so he spent years and years and years fighting them. And finally, a time of rest. And so David, I can imagine him... Um, he probably had a recliner or something. And he's kicked back and looking around in his palace, and he's got these cedar walls, and he's probably watching some Gamecock football. That's what the kings of Israel watched. And, and he's sitting there and like, man, this is the life. And he peeks out his window, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Holy God, is sitting there in a tent. And not just any tent, but a tent that is, gosh, hundreds of years old at this point in the tabernacle, and he says, wow, I'm in a house, and the only thing we have for God is this tent. And so he, he's, um, we have this guy, Nathan. Nathan is um, the next prophet we meet after Samuel, and the, the role of the prophets was to speak the word of God to the people of Israel, but especially to the king. And so, so Nathan is, is with David, and David says, well, Nathan, we, I've got to build a house for God. Look at this magnificent palace I'm in. God's in a tent. We, let's build him this, this grand temple. And Nathan says, well, that sounds like a good idea. Um, but then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, and this is in verse 4. Um, on the next slide, it says this. 
after the king was settled in his palace, oh no, that's what it, oh, it says, it says this, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so David says, Well, I got, I got this great house. I got to build one for God. And God says, Really? You know, I've been in a tent for like 400 years. It hadn't bothered me. I haven't gone to any leader before you and said, hey, you're forgetting to build me a house. No, I, ha- I haven't done that, is what God says. And I- I'm not going to do it now, David. I'm not going to do it now. You- it is not for you to build my house. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. And, and one of them we find in um, the book of Chronicles. David will eventually tell his son Solomon. He says, Solomon, the reason that God would not let me build him a temple was because I had waged so much war in the land, that he had killed so many people on God's behalf that God would not allow him to be the one to build the temple. He, he, was, just, he, he was too caught up in the wars of Israel. And so God was going to leave that for a king who was presiding over a time of rest. And so David's son Solomon would build this amazing temple to God, this, this huge, glorious, amazing temple, but not David. What does David get to do? What does God say? God says, David, you can't build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. You cannot build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. And so we read on verse 8 on the next slide. It says this. God says, to Nathan, so this is God speaking to Nathan, Nathan will tell this to David, therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will point a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and if you read on it says, I will do this forever and ever and forever and forever and forever. Forever. And so we have um, a Bible word happening here. God is making a covenant with David. And there's all sorts of covenants in the Bible. Um, Many people say, and and I think they're right, there's a, a covenant of some sort at creation where God creates out of nothing and he creates the goodness of the Garden of Eden, and that begins his relationship with creation. Then he has a covenant with Noah. You remember that that famous passage where Noah sees the rainbow, and God says, I will never again flood the earth. Then there's a covenant with Abraham, and God says, I will make you a father of a great nation. And then there's a covenant at Mount Sinai. You shall be my people, I shall be your God, and you will be holy, a kingdom of priests. And here we have David, and God's saying, David, I will put a king in your name on the throne of God 
forever. On the throne of Israel forever. This is a big covenant. And this covenant led the Jews at the time of Jesus. They're sitting there in Jerusalem under Roman authority with no king. They've had no king for some four or five hundred years at this point. And they're thinking, what happened to the promises of God? What happened? We'll come back to that. So, a couple things about this covenant. Let's just look at it, and then we'll figure out what it means for us. Um, Verses 8 and 9, one of the first things we see in this covenant is that it is based on the work that God has already done. Okay? It's based on who God is, the work He's already done. So, So, God says this, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you and been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So I'm making this covenant with you. And look, this is how you know you can trust me. Look at everything I've done for you in your life. You were just a shepherd. You were the youngest son. You were, you were destined to live your life in the fields chasing those dumb sheep all over the place. But I delivered you. I've made you the king of Israel. And I've delivered you from your enemies. You're sitting in your great palace watching football because of me. Because of what I've done for you. This covenant is, is based on what God has done for David. And we see a little bit in this psalm. In Psalm 89, David wrote this psalm. And I've lost the verse, but it says, well, I won't find it. Basically, it says this. Because of God's holiness... He made a covenant with me. He established a kingdom because of his holiness, because of who he is and who he was. This is not some sort of random guy that we don't know making a covenant with David. This is the God of the universe, and that can be trusted. And the foundation of this covenant is built on all the work that God has done before. It's the first thing we need to remember about this covenant, that it's based on who God is and what he has done. The second thing is this. The covenant is in no way dependent upon David's actions. It is in no way dependent upon David's actions. Let's, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, let's see. He's t- talking about David's son. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, so when he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Or as it says, and again in our psalm, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Isn't that amazing? That God is entering into this covenant with David, and he says, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your children do. It doesn't matter what your grandchildren do. I will not remove from them my steadfast love and faithfulness. 
It also says in that psalm, I cannot lie to David. This covenant is independent, totally independent about what David would do. And as if to somehow reinforce this, in three chapters, David's going to see a beautiful woman. He's going to have an affair with her. He's going to have her husband killed. And yet God will still deliver on his promises. Where David's son Solomon will build this great palace, this great kingdom, this great temple for God. And then he'll take on hundreds of wives and use slave labor. And eventually the kingdom of Israel will be divided because of the sins of Solomon. And yet God will not depart from his faithfulness. Independent. Totally independent about what David or Solomon or their children do. And then finally, this um, covenant is, is a prophecy. And it's something, um, I'll try to explain this, something about the way prophecy works in the Old Testament is kind of like a telescope, okay? You know a telescope that, you know, it's long and you can make it short and long, um, and so if you want to see something, you, you stick it out. And so, so you have a prophecy that will pr- uh, uh, predict a couple of different things that could span over, you know, five or six or seven centuries, and that will combine them into one statement. Okay, so this is how this works. In this passage, God promises a couple things. He promises that um, one of David's sons will build him a house, will build a temple. And it also promises that that kingdom shall reign forever. That one of David's sons will build a temple and the kingdom will reign forever. And so we have Solomon built God a temple. That was a very immediate prophecy. You know, within uh, 50 years, Solomon was building a temple for God. But the forever part wasn't there yet. Solomon died. Solomon's sons were um, wicked, more wicked than he was. All the kings of Israel, basically, after David, were awful, except for two. Okay? And so this prophecy that starts to be fulfilled in Solomon, by the time you get to Jesus, the Jewish people are waiting around and saying, where's the rest? What's next? You forgot something. You forgot that forever part. You know, the part where we have a kingdom, where we're not subject to torture and to Roman rule. Where where is that? Where is that? And then we come to Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. The angel says to Mary, You will conceive in your womb, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he shall be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father, David. And so we see this prophecy coming to its end, coming to fulfillment in Jesus. The same Jesus who who, who is God who took on the form of, of man, who was born, he was, a, he was a baby, a helpless little baby, God, who walked on this earth, who gave up his life on the cross, and who was resurrected from the dead, and who now sits at the right hand of God on the throne of David, where one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so, where do we fit into this, this great story? That's all fine and interesting and exciting, but what about us? What about the church, the people of God, the body of Christ? Well, we are subjects of this kingdom. This kingdom, David's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. We are his subjects. We are members of this kingdom. And so we're going to remember three things. And they're very similar to this covenant we just looked at. The first thing is this. The promises of God are based on the work of God. The work of God that we see that um, David's promises are based on is just a small glimpse into what God would do. And so the promises of God that he has made to us, the promises of redemption, the promises of forgiveness, of new life, are based on the work of Jesus Christ. God says, you can believe these things because this is how much I love you, that I sent my one and only son to die for you, to take your sins, to take everybody in here in this room. If you believe in Jesus, he's taken your sins And he's carried them on the cross. And so he paid the punishment that we deserve for falling short of the glory of God day in and day out. And because of that, God says, everything I promised you is yours. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. And we receive the Holy Spirit. And we see a glimpse of God's kingdom here on earth. And God says, that's the promise. That's the down payment. You see that? Just wait. Just wait for what I have in store for you. The promises of God are based on the work of God. Secondly, um, is this. These promises that God has guaranteed us are independent of what we do. They have nothing to do with our actions. Well, they have something to do with them, but but, but God's going to be faithful to them no matter what you do. No matter what you do, okay? God's going to be faithful. I'm going to steal an illustration from a friend of mine. Um, because this is applicable at my house. We have a dishwasher. Y'all have, y'all have dishwashers, most people in here. Um, that's not, my, not me. It's an actual dishwasher. And my mom did this, and then I learned this very early on in marriage. Um, before you can put the dirty dishes in the dishwasher, you have to wash them. Did you know this? You have to wash them. And so, you know, we, we, have a, we have a lot of dishes in my house. We have five kids. There's dishes all over the place. We're going through 15 plates a day at least. And, um, you know, so, so we rinse them off. We have to get all the food off of them, and we set them aside, and they look nice and sparkling clean. And then we put them in the dishwasher. And I'm, the reason for this is because the dishwasher didn't always do its job. But sometimes... I feel like we do that when we're coming to God or when we're coming um, to church or we're, when we're, we're trying to follow Jesus. Or, or We'll say something like this, Lord, I will follow you as soon as I get my act together. As soon as I get rid of that lust in my heart and I know I can do it if I just work hard enough, then I can follow you. Or as soon as I start giving more money to you and to the church as soon as I can stop, you know, writing those huge checks for, for my boat or my second house or my fourth house. As soon, I'll get rid of that and then I'll be able to follow you better. Let me clean up my life so I can follow you. It doesn't work that way, friends. You will never, you will never get yourself holy enough to follow Jesus. You're not going to do it. But it doesn't matter. 
Romans, for while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Finally, in this new covenant kingdom, we have to remember who the king is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the king. And so we are called to to come into his likeness and to, to let him shape us and form us like he is. And so we have to know what the king did and how did he get to be king. He did it very humbly. He didn't just defeat all his enemies like, G, like the Jews were expecting. He didn't destroy the Roman Empire. No, he died on a cross. Humble and weak. And that's what God said. And that, you know, he saw that and he says, I honor that. That is what true obedience looks like. And so if we're going to be members of this kingdom, we've got to act like the king. And we've got to, we've got to let the Holy Spirit make us humble and make us weak. And so if we, start seek, if we think we're seeking Jesus and we do it by trying to get power and status and money, that's, that's not the king. That's not the king. The king is humble and the king is weak. And, and here's, here's our tendency, friends, and you've heard me say this. We like to make different kings. Okay? There's an old saying that says, uh, what is it? God made man in his own image, and man has been doing likewise for thousands of years. Man has been making God in his image for thousands of years. And we, we make gods, we make kings, and we want a king that's going to affirm, um, you know, making lots of money and not giving away. We want a king that's going to affirm our, our, our lust and our desires that are obviously not godly. We want a king that's going to affirm us as we make idols out of our children. We want a king that is going to be made in our image, a king that looks like us and acts like us, and Jesus is not that. If you want that king, you're in the wrong spot. But if you want a king that died for you, that calls you, calls you to die daily, to give up your life for him, for others, to serve others, then follow Jesus. Because this kingdom is open to anyone I'll close with this passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast love, my steadfast, sure love for David. That love he had for David is open up to all of us right now, this morning. Will you come? Will you come be a part of this kingdom, part of this covenant? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this covenant that you made with your servant David. This covenant is totally dependent on who you are and what you've done. It is totally independent on who we are and what we've done. 
this covenant that calls us to be transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who's questioning your goodness and your greatness, if there's anybody here who thinks they're just not holy enough to follow you, that you would take that away from them. You would fill them with your Holy Spirit. That each one of us in this room would come to your throne. Come.